This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case i got bored welcome all to another episode of literary treks this is episode number 295 we are your official star trek books and comics podcast of the trek fm network and i emphasize comics because comics is the theme of the day on this episode because we are going to talk about star trek picard countdown all three issues and with me, as he always is to discuss comics, is Dan Gunther. How you doing, Dan? Hey, Bruce. Happy to be here, as always, talking about comics. So many comics in this episode, I'm wondering if we should put out the show art with Comic Sans font. We could do that. I'll have you work on that. <laughs> yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually veto that idea right as soon as it came out of my mouth. So, yeah, <laughs> never mind. I saw it come out of your mouth in a bubble. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Well, since we are going to be talking about comics in the future, we do have a comic that we need to talk about before we get to the future. We have Star Trek Year 5, number 9, that has released. And, of course, we've been keeping up with these comics as they have been coming out. And the last we've left our TOS crew, they were dealing with the Tholians and the web, and they also met this aquatic-like creature and she boarded the Enterprise, and they're taking her back to her home. And Sulu and this aquatic creature name was it a lot. What was her name? Uh, Ayal? Uh, yeah, they're named Ayal. A-Y-A-L. So he gets it on with Ayal. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, gets it on. Like, if you ever wanted to see it, a naked George Takei, this is your issue. Mm-hmm. You Those him? are some... Impressive abs. And I have to say impressive calves, too. Yes, Poking out the bottom of the sheet there. (laughs) And we should also say um, Al or Al's pronouns. A little confusing, a little hard if you're not used to it, but uh, they, them, as opposed to he or she. Al or he, she, they, whatever, is part of the Icosa. And the Icosa also have on their world the Lucari. And they're all the same species, but the Icosa live under the sea where they're all originally from. 
But the Lokari have moved up to the land, and they primarily live on land, and they have become the Harden. So there's like the sea dwellers and the land dwellers, and there seems to be a rift between the two, mainly coming from the ones on the land. I was kind of waiting. I don't know if you were, but I was kind of waiting for a little cartoon crab to come out and start singing about the joys of living under the sea. Uh, But that did not happen. (laughs) Under the sea. No, that did not happen. But so we're heading to the planet. And I have to say that Chekhov is not my favorite character in this, but at the same time is my favorite character because yeah, Sulu is all like pro. Yes, let's help and let's do this and stuff. And Chekhov is just like, oh, why are we doing this? And oh, this is, you know, the communications are spotty and we're not, can't use the transporter. And then they, uh, so Sulu, Chekhov and Spock all get on a shuttlecraft to head down to the planet and Chekhov just complains the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Like, the one part, and the and the first time is really, you know, the, this AL person says, I assure you, my people care nothing for war, just like yours. And Chekhov kind of, it's smaller typeface, kind of indicating he's saying it under his breath, but he's like, then perhaps you could solve your own problems. Like, what's his problem? <laughs> this, this guy's got, a, got an issue, this issue. Yeah, I thought that was really odd that he would be so against help. I mean, it's not like... These people are unreasonable, at least the one he's talking to. I mm-hmm. mean, you think he'd be supportive. It's just almost like, oh, why are we even doing this? What? You deal with it yourself. Get us out of this. But that's what they're out there for. This is, yeah. part, this is what Starfleet is. <laughs> part of me in the back of my mind is like Chekhov and Sulu are best bros. And like they hung out together and did everything together. But AL's been taking so much of Sulu's time that they haven't gotten to hang out. So, so he's, he's like jealous. jealous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, but really it's just a kind of joke, but if yeah, you look maybe. at that panel though, before he says that and AL says what she's, he, or they say, Chekhov says, this feels off dangerous somehow. So he's kind of questioning like something doesn't seem right. Mm-hmm. So maybe because he's got this funny feeling He's just kind of like, uh, yeah. It's still an odd comment for him to say, though. It's not yeah. appropriate. And Spock <laughs> calls him out on it. So yeah, there is definitely that. It, it's it's odd behavior for Chekhov, I think. So yes. Well, you know, we have our good days, we have our bad days, and this is an off day for Chekhov. But <laughs> that's true. So they land on the planet, and Al says, "Hey, you know, we can let's go see my people underwater." And indicates that the water will embrace you. You'll be able to go into the sea as if they could breathe. And that's when even Chekhov is like, do they mean to say we can breathe underwater? And Spock's like, it seems to be the indication here. That's what they're implying. And so they go into the water, which, again, I love Chekhov in this because they all <laughs> go into water. And like, ball jump. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't care. <laughs> I think about it. I mean, if you're going to picture Starfleet officers jumping into the water, you probably picture them <laughs> diving in or just jumping in feet first or whatever. He does a cannonball <laughs> into the water. I love that 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 full frame, that full page view of them jumping into the water. <laughs> and then he's holding his breath, which, yeah, I would be too, but... You know, they've been told that they can breathe underwater and Spock is telling him under the water, you know, you can, you can breathe. And of course he opens up his mouth and 
sure enough, yes, it's it's true. They can breathe and talk underwater, which I kept wondering, like, what would it sound like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was kind of wondering that myself. Um, in the comic, of course, it's just speech bubbles like normal, but uh, it's kind of left up to us to imagine what that different sound would be. Well, you know, Ayal says that the water is oxygen rich, so maybe it's not as consistent like in like with our water in a sense. Like mm-hmm. maybe sound waves travel a little more easier. That maybe it's not Spock and they're going This would be an interesting episode to watch if that were the case. Oh, then one of the people shows up and this person is considered the speaker of the crest and Mm, guides the Icosa. And uh, so essentially it's decided that, you know, they've, they've heard from these land dwellers and they're willing to have a summit, a conversation. So Spock, Chekhov and Sulu go with the Icosas up to the land and they go into the star Wars cantina (laughs) as stressed as Jedi in their robes. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> much, right? These kind of kelp robes, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, they're kind of in disguise, which surprises me that no one has really noticed that they're human under there. Cause they're not mm-hmm. really that like hidden under. No. Under yeah. Faces. Until Sulu takes a drink of, um, whatever this is. And just before he does, Ayal says, Sulu, no. And, he spits it up, which dislodges his hood. And that's that's the first indication that these guys, you know, don't recognize these people and consider them off-worlders. Yeah, which, I guess, yeah, it was definitely surprising. Yeah, I guess because they're, they're probably keeping at certain angles so they, their faces can't be seen and stuff. But yeah, now that this happens, now it's revealed and these uh, these more land dwellers are, hey, you know, humans, what are you doing here? And now they're suspicious, you know, th- because this was supposed to be a talk between the two people, and now they see that the Icosas brought these uh, people f- from another planet, these aliens with them, and you know there's some fighting that kind of ensues, and then a shot happens and hits one of the uh, the chancellor of these people on the land, and mm-hmm. it was Chekhov that used his phaser, but it was on stun. But they think he's killed them. But regardless, he shot their chancellor. Yeah. And I mean, it's kind of, it looks like this other guy kind of grabs his hand and Chekhov saying, wait, what are you? And it looks like he's the one that kind of set this all off. But it definitely looks like Chekhov did the deed. And even Sulu, you know, is kind of blaming Chekhov later as well. And, uh, you know, Chekhov's kind of like, I swear I, I didn't do it, you know, but. Yeah. And at first I wasn't sure. I mean, it's not. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's like you're saying, it's not real obvious of who's shooting or how, if, you know, who was the instigator in that. But IL does say later, it really doesn't matter because if it didn't happen, then it was eventually something like this was going to happen. You know, mm. it's just there's this whole trust issue. And, and it really is with the assumption that these land dwelling people are not looking to make peace that they're just looking for a fight. And now because of this, this gave them the excuse they wanted and now they're going to war to be continued. Yeah. 
And it kind of ends with this. They've, they've unleashed this weapon, which they call the sea burners, I guess. And the intention there is to kill all the, the sea dwelling versions of this life form. And, and yeah, so it doesn't look good. No, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like their version of the death star that floats on water. Yeah, exactly. I'm making all these Star Wars connections on this. <laughs> no, but I mean, I like this issue. I mean, it's very much a Star Trek story. Yeah, I'm interested to see how it plays out. Yeah, there's some really good things in this this issue. It's interesting. It reminded me of the Tholian web a little bit in that Kirk is absent from the main story for the most part. Um, which gives the original series a really interesting dynamic because Kirk was for sure the main character in the original series. So, you know, there was, it was very rare. There was an episode that focused not on him. So I, I like that dynamic when that happens, when he's not front and center and plus Sulu gets some romance, which is great. <laughs> Everyone else, you know, we've had Scotty romance. We've had lots of Kirk. We've had Spock and McCoy romances even Chekhov, it's good to see Sulu, you know, get some uh, um, action on the side, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just going to say uh, about Sulu, that's the thing I'm interested in, see how it plays out, because he has a relationship with this alien. And so that could bring a whole different type of dynamic and twist to the story going forward. Like, you know, mm -hmm. how much is he going to step in and protect them? Or maybe he even doesn't he gives excuses to this race. Maybe this race is the instigators in a sense and hasn't been totally honest in these situations. I don't know. I'd, I'd yeah. like to see how that plays out. For sure. Cause we do only get their side of the story really uh, when it comes down to it. So yeah. And Kirk is out of action because of previous issues. He's in sick bay recovering from the Tholian right. situation. So that's why he's sitting out. And so is the little guy, the, as nurse chapel calls them the kid. Mm -hmm. She says, "It's kind kid, of like Star Wars is the child, right? <laughs> the chi this is Baby Yoda, Tholian, Baby Tholian, <laughs> exactly." <laughs> All right, well, that's the comic. We look forward to issue number ten next month, and of course, we will cover it here on Literary Treks. Indeed. So let's go to some listener feedback. Our last episode was about Holloman, the Deep Space Nine novel, and that episode was called Pulling the Strings, episode number 294. We have three comments for this. We have Brandon Harbeck that says, Great episode and discussion. One of the aspects I like best about Una McCormick's books is that she does not lead the reader by the hand through absolutely everything. She assumes the reader can make some of the connections and discover the themes without having characters or narration drop anvils. In the episode Justice, Picard said that there can be no justice as long as laws are absolute. This book seems to be a counterpart to that sentiment, meditating on where exactly the lines should be between exceptions that serve justice and rule violations that are still wrong. Yes, and by the way, okay, so I like this comment because saying that Una does not, you know, hold the reader's hand throughout. And that's so true about this novel. And that's, I again, you know, I wanted all the answers and because I didn't have some answers, but that's what makes the book fun. I agree, Brandon. It's like, you know, you're just trying to figuring things out as you're going along. Yeah, that is an aspect of it that I did ultimately like. Um, 
And I, I love your comments on justice. That's that's really fascinating. I like looking at it through that lens for sure. Well, Brandon Shamutala says, I agree with your thoughts on the upcoming Kelvin timeline novels. I want them to be unique to that series of characters and not simply a regular TOS style novel. While I don't like the three movies very much, I actually rank all three at the bottom of the 13 films. I found a new appreciation for the series by following along with literary treks and your coverage of the continuing comic series. I thought the comic series was really great and hope these books are just as good, if not better than those comics. Well, thanks for that comment, Brandon. And yeah, definitely agree. Uh, We did talk last week about uh, the upcoming Kelvin Timeline novels. That's where that comment comes from. So uh, really looking forward to those. I'm so excited. Anyway, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Kimberly Lawler says, nice discussion. I did agree with the comment about the storylines not quite relating or fitting together exactly. As much as I absolutely love Una McCormick's writing, it has happened with a few of her novels where I feel slightly confused about certain jumps between plot lines or scenes, including The Missing and Enigma Tales. But it doesn't detract from the overall story. The exploration here of whether the ends can justify the means is powerful. I do think it speaks to Sisko's character that he is bothered by what he did, but I don't think that absolves him entirely since he did not have to know what Garrick was likely to do, but I'm glad he admitted it. I'm also looking forward to the Kelvin books. Yay! I really enjoyed the Kelvin iterations of the characters and can't wait to read stories involving them specifically. One thing I think J.J. Abrams really excels at is casting, and it will be fun to picture Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, Carl Urban, and the others in the novels. So I have to say, can really real quick to that, I think, and I've said this for Star Trek, for Star Wars, and other things, I think when it comes to casting and JJ working with the cast, mm-hmm. he excels. So absolutely, well. absolutely agree with that. Um, that was one of the things I remember when the Kelvin timeline films were first starting in 2009. The idea that other actors could play these iconic roles is kind of tough to wrap my head around, but man, did he ever put together a great cast, um, you know, and and it wasn't even like this person looks and sounds exactly like the other characters, so they're good. He picked people who inhabit those roles in a much more fundamental way than just how they look. Like Simon Pegg as Scotty, I was totally skeptical and then I saw him on screen and I was like, ah, that's Scotty. That's great. You know, yeah. I, I love the cast. Yeah. I mean, if I were cast in a movie and someone said, who would you want to direct you in a movie? I think it would be J.J. Abrams. I don't think he's like the best in the world's greatest director necessarily. That's not the point. But I get the sense that he is a lot of fun on the set and really brings that out. You know, and I think it would be the kind of environment that would fit good for me. (laughs) Just saying. I don't know. (laughs) So, yeah, thanks for all your comments. And uh, we look forward to everyone else's comments on future episodes in the Babel Conference on Facebook. So if you're not in the Babel Conference, uh, search for it and uh, ask to join so you can have your comments read here on the show. But that being said, I said we go right into the feature with our guest, Mike Johnson. I absolutely agree. And one thing I do want to point out here is our discussion involves the three comics of the Star Trek Picard countdown comic series, but we do also discuss the first two episodes of Star Trek Picard. So uh, a little bit of a spoiler warning if you haven't watched both of those episodes yet, Uh, just so you're aware, we do talk about elements uh, in those first two episodes. 
That is true. And if you haven't watched those two episodes, do, please. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm assuming you have if you're listening to this episode about the Countdown comics, but just in case. <laughs> but just in case you can't afford or you just haven't had time, whatever, we get it. But yeah, even if we didn't talk about those two episodes, I don't know if you'd want to hear the comic because you really should read it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> oh, well, let's go to it. Let's see. Okay, well, in today's feature, we are talking about Star Trek Picard Countdown, and it's not just the first issue, nor the second, or the third. It's all of them, all combined, all three issues. We're telling the whole story here on Literary Treks, and to help us with that is one of the co-authors of this story. It is Mike Johnson. How are you doing, Mike? I am great, guys. Uh, ha- thank you for having me. It's great to great to be on with you. Always happy to have you on, and and welcome back. It's it's always a pleasure Thanks. to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, and uh, perfect timing. Uh, we just wrapped up the series this week, and and the show is out there in the world. Mm-hmm. So finally, it's great. Definitely exciting time to be a Star Trek fan. I got to say, <laughs> yes, it is, and it was fun reading this last issue, going into then watching episode two because I thought, ha. I knew things that some people don't know because they haven't read the comic, but then oh, cool. things were getting revealed in episode two that I was like, ooh, if you had read the comic, you would know some of this. <laughs> yeah, great. That is so great to hear. That is exactly what we hoped for, that, that people who had read the comics would feel like they had a little bit more knowledge about the, so that when you see the relationships between the characters in the show, you've got a little more emotional heft because you, you saw where they had been in the past in the comic mm-hmm. yeah then that's definitely the case i love that uh i mean it, it's nice that it's been revealed to everyone else now but yeah that idea that like oh these guys are tal shiar was something that i thought was really cool that you wouldn't necessarily have any clue about it just watching the first episode yeah that was more of a a reveal later for the show talking about you know when they were younger and um so uh, that was something that was great because whenever you do a prequel comic, you want to ha- actually have something to give uh, so that it matters. And it's not just a completely unconnected story th- uh, that has nothing to do with the show. And we were really lucky because Kirsten Beyer, my brilliant co-writer and, uh, and producer, one of the creators of the show, um, knew exactly what we could say and what we couldn't. So. It was, the, it was the perfect uh, marriage of, of the two mediums. So speaking of Kirsten, so the two of you are working on writing this comic together, which you've done also uh, co-authored some of the Discovery comics. But now when Star Trek Picard was greenlit by CBS, what was the process in getting this project going? Did they approach you? Did IDW go to CBS and say, we want to do a countdown comic? Tell us how we got to the point of putting this comic together. Well, since I've been working with IDW for so long, uh, going back to the, the the original countdown for the 2009 movie, um, I'm always kind of anticipating what's coming up. And I was obnoxious. I was just sort of saying, if we do a countdown, we should do a countdown. If we do a countdown, I want to do it. Um, so uh, not that it was it was my doing, but it was definitely, it was in the air. And we had, we sort of had casual discussions with it. Um, on both sides, IDW and CBS. And ultimately it, it seemed like a natural thing to do. And uh, it seemed natural since Kirsten and I 
had worked on the disco comics, then it just sort of, it made sense to keep it as close to the show as possible. We also had a, a very tight um, production timeline. Um, and our brilliant editor, Chase Moritz at IDW, just did an incredible job of getting everything together very quickly. Um, we were lucky to get Angel Hernandez, who we'd worked with before. So there was a shorthand there and we knew he could handle, he could draw whatever we threw at him. So um, it was a very quick process, actually. Um, and um, yeah, ultimately, it just seemed like a nice bookend, given that Alex had co-written and produced the 2009 movie and now was is, is heading Star Trek as a franchise. It, it was kind of a nice bookend to have the two countdowns. So in the process of writing this, how closely did you and Kirsten Beyer work? Was it kind of the both of you coming up with the story together or was it uh, kind of like getting the story elements from the show from Kirsten and working with that? Yeah, it was actually a story uh, given to me, um, given to us. Basically, you know, there's all this backstory as you're starting to learn in the show about what happened um, between Nemesis and the Picard show. Um, and, I'll, and, and so there was all this backstory. You couldn't really show it all in the show. Um, you don't want to. The show's about what's going on in the present time of the show. But, uh, you know, Star Trek, since its origin, has always had um, ancillary materials that flesh out these stories. So, um, and we knew that would be the case here. And actually, the biggest piece of it is uh, Una McCormick's upcoming book um, about Picard that I think drops next week. I think, or maybe... Yeah, weeks. I think it's February 11th. Yeah, which is phenomenal and um, something, you know, we, we were able to read the early drafts of it and as well as the scripts for the show. So we were able to uh, make sure that the novel and the comics all work together. And um, the novel really, as a novel can do, goes in depth on a variety of strands of the backstory. But for comics... Um, we wanted something really visual, but also that could be contained and, and told in three issues, but also mattered. So the origin of um, Laris and Javon just felt like a very natural fit. So that became, and also given the, the quick turnaround on, on the series, we didn't really have time to come up with something completely new, but we didn't want to. We wanted it to tie in directly. So it so the thinking was basically, hey, let's show how they met Picard because we're going to meet them in the first episode of the show. And we're not going to explain their, you know, how they met and all that in the show. So let's show it in the comic. So it was a really nice, um, it, was, it was a stroke of luck actually just, just to have um, that story needing to be told and the comics uh, being the perfect avenue for it. Yeah, in a lot of ways, this feels like it should be the first episode. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. a prequel. I mean, it goes right yeah. into leading and setting things up when you go into the series. Uh, it's it's good to hear. I'm glad it felt like that to you. That was kind of our plan with all of these. We want them to feel, um, yeah, like they could be they could be filmed. Um, and you know, there's only so much uh, so much film that can be. Uh, well, I guess it's not shot on film, but it's it, there's only so much time you can put on screen. Um, and uh, it's just great that Star Trek lends itself to the different media so well. 
Well, and it's so cool because as you're mentioning, you know, there's characters in here. And then when we watch the series, I'm watching it going like, I know who that is. Oh my gosh. I had no idea they were going to be in the show. They're in the comic. And, you know, so it's a great connection there. But now there's other characters that, of course, Picard, but we also get Jordy in here. And they're the only TNG characters that we get in the comic. So yeah. were you just itching to maybe just include mention or some of the other TNG characters in here? Yeah. And they said, nope, you got to hold back. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's the other aspect of the whole project is what can we say and what we can't. And we had to be really careful. So it was kind of a case by case thing. Obviously, I would love to put the entire TNG cast in there. But the focus of the show is very much Picard. And we didn't want the comic to deviate from that too much um, and suddenly be a TNG prequel, mm-hmm. both because that's not what the Picard show is. And also we didn't want to give fans the wrong idea. So it was case by case and, and Jordy is a natural fit. Yeah. I can tell you this is um, not really spoiling anything, but it's a good reason to pick up the book is that Jordy being um, at the Mars shipyards is in the book. And it, it, so I thought, well, if, if we're doing it in the book, can we show it in the comic? So that's a, that's a way to kind of weave them together. And it feels like a whole cohesive story rather than oh, each okay. medium doing its own thing. So that, that again was a natural thing where, um, okay, we know Jordy's there. So let's, uh, and it felt good to actually open the story with that connection of TNG, just the way that the show opens with, um, Picard and data again, even though it's, not real. Uh, it's the two of them so that it starts with that remembrance of TNG and how much we loved it. But then it goes into a new story, which was a nice way to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, I got to say there was a segment of, you know, Star Trek fandom who had of course read the comics and knew Jordy was at Utopia Planitia that was really worried about this character because of where you put him. <laughs> um, and I, yeah. yeah. Um, what can I say? Uh, <laughs> Wow, I really don't know what I can say. So, which is always best not to say anything. Okay, so uh, so more to come. Then, but I would like to I'm write hearing. more adventures. Yeah, more to yeah, exactly. Um, well, at least we well, know he's alive because in episode two they they mentioned him. There so. you go. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's right. So they saved me. Yeah. So um, I can tell you that I am hoping to tell more stories uh, around that time and what happened. Okay. And that's a that's a way to show some of the TNG characters. Um, you know, in, in because we're all a, eager to find out what happened to them after uh, Nemesis. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And I just love Jordy. So it's really cool to put him in there. I did see some people joking that, of course, you know, the workers there didn't get first contact day off. But I guess Jordy did. He's <laughs> high muckamuck. <laughs> yeah, he's fine. He's taken care of. You know, everything, everyone's supposed to be equal, but some people are more equal than others. You know, <laughs> you know I, I don't like to point out things that could possibly be errors and things. Do it. But, you know, do it. <laughs> <laughs> but we do ha- see the more Discovery era Starfleet command symbol on his screen and not the more 24th century one. But we see him later reviewing some things on a pad that also has that logo. And so my head Canon, he's doing research into something that took place a hundred years ago. Hmm. That is true. I've decided (laughs) that one, that one snuck past. I don't think it was, it wasn't a deliberate. Um, I think it's slightly different. Uh, but, um, 
yeah that that's uh what you get a no prize the, <laughs> there you go for me personally it's Why one of those things it? i look at it and say yeah it's close enough but uh yeah, yeah i do too but i always <laughs> like to then just like, but, put backstories to things but <laughs> i'm glad but like that's the bar right like we have to have that bar and most of the time we, we you know it, it it's okay but we're all pushing to make sure that the universe is as cohesive as possible and that comes down to um, you know, the studs on a uniform or something, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the stripes, the, the color of a random piece of equipment. So, um, I'm going to clock that one up to the production schedule. So it's not really anybody's fault. It's time's <laughs> fault. It's the concept. It's, it's the concept. Well, fault. we know how sometimes. much of a pain time is in Star Trek sometimes. So that's uh it's a character, yeah. it's a character in and of itself. Yeah. Absolutely is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, another character we've seen here isn't part of Picard's Enterprise crew, but uh, he's got a new ship as Admiral, and he also has a first officer who we just met in the second episode, but they didn't identify her as being his former first officer. But we, the readers, (laughs) know who she is. Yeah, that was fun. That was really cool. So that will be made more clear, but uh, it was so fun that we got to put her in the comic and show set up their relationships so that because when you meet them in the show, they're completely on the outs, you know, she's hates them. I mean, uh, so we wanted to show them when they were a team working together. And I think, uh, not just to set up, um, the show, but also to, to show a different side of her character, because when we meet her in the show, um, you know, she's disillusioned. Um, she's sort of left the world behind and the comic got to show her, uh, you know, in Starfleet, proactive, believing in the mission, um, enjoying working with with Picard. And the other thing that was fun was to show that Picard um, has a life beyond the Enterprise and that crew. When you know he's got the new ship, the Verity, and the Verity actually comes again from the novel that's coming out, um, showing Picard still being, even though he's Admiral now, he's still got his, he's still enjoying the captain's job, right? He's still enjoying getting his hands dirty. That was always what he wanted. He never wanted to be sitting at a desk back in San Francisco. So uh, this character, Rafi Musiker, and I hope I'm saying that correctly. um, Nicely done. Thank you. As, uh, as Bruce mentioned, you know, we see them in Picard and she hates Picard. Their relationship is definitely strained. Um, I know you can't really fill in that backstory for us, but is that, something that we will learn kind of what happened, what got her from where they were at the end of the comic to what we see in the show. Yes. All right. Yes. <laughs> well, I kind of expect that. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. It'd be weird if they didn't, she's just mad at them the whole time and you never find out why. Well, and that yeah. was really interesting. Yeah, it's an too. important part of the show. Okay. Well, cause when I was watching episode two and she doesn't really want to have anything to do with him. I was a little shocked because reading this comic, I was like, well, wait, she was his first officer. They Good. had a really great relationship. Yeah. She even yeah. called him, you know, JL. JL. You know? She called him JL. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I now mean, that, all of a sudden, and that's from the riff. show. That, that's from the, um, I think, did she say it in the second episode? Did she call him JL? Mm, I think, I, I can't remember. I didn't catch I it so. if she did. And I was kind I of listening for it. But, um, yeah. Um, I think that was something we took from the scripts. So, okay. But again, the scripts that we read, we weren't reading final production drafts because mm-hmm. we did, we were, we had to put the comic out. So 
uh, you know, there's always, it's great to have the scripts. It's important to have the scripts, but there are things that can change in the shooting. And then again, in post. So it's, it, it doesn't, you sort of just fingers crossed that things you took from the script, uh, will be there in the final product. Um, not a perfect science, but, but yeah. And again, that's, that's the, I think that's what the best prequel comics or, or novels or anything do is, um, not just give you what you're getting in the show itself, but give you a different, a different look at it. Because even Laris and Jabon, their, their characters, their personalities are different in the comic. Um, they're a little more, they're not quite so, uh, sarcastic, you know, <laughs> and, um, ribbing him because that kind of relationship happens over time. Right. Where, you know, you, when they meet, he's kind of a, it's a, it's kind of a formal relationship, right? Plus they're in a moment of crisis sizing each other up. So they're not really even sure, um, you know, what he, neither side is sure what the other's going to do. And then at the end of the prequel comic, he basically invites them home. He invites them to the Chateau to, to, to live safely. And then, so I love watching the show where, you know, all these years later, after having lived around each other, you know, they're, they're teasing each other. And, uh, that was really fun. Mm -hmm. So, and the whole cast is amazing too. Oh yeah. They've really knocked it out of the park so far. Um, yeah, for sure. I, I'm curious. You, you said you got the scripts. Was there any opportunity to see any um, footage, like rough cuts or anything, before everyone else, or was it just no, the scripts? Just the scripts. The uh, the footage was under many locks and many keys, <laughs> as it should be. Mm -hmm. I'm sure if I was in LA, I'm in San Diego. I if I was in LA, I probably could have obnoxiously guilted Alex or Kirsten into letting me see something just pestering, <laughs> but I have to be careful how much I pester uh, because I like my job. Lose it. Um, sure. But, but honestly though, uh, it, it was just, um, you know, they just wanted to protect it. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things, you know, Patrick Stewart coming back to Picard um, is one of those things that, we didn't even know if we would ever get to see. So, you know, people are hungry for it. And uh, yeah, the security was, was as tight as it can be. Yeah, I can imagine it. And so let's actually talk a little bit about Picard at this point in the comic, because he is an admiral. He's in charge of a ship. He's going to rescue or, you know, try to evacuate Romulans uh, before the supernova hits and so this is about a year before that happens. And he yeah. also, um, he's sent to this one colony world where we do meet some Romulans. There's a governor there and they're very welcoming for him to him. And then he goes out in the vineyards and there's these natives there. And he didn't know that there were natives on the planet. And there's like millions of them compared to the thousands of Romulans there are. And he doesn't have room for them. And so That's he's right. now in this middle ground of like, I need to rescue all life. And the Romans are like, no. <laughs> and so we find that he, they eventually throw him in a cell and same with Rafi. They throw her in a cell too. But you know, is he too trusting? Is he so focused on the mission that he's not being careful enough to really read the Romulans and, and, and their reluctance of getting help from the Federation? Right. 
Yeah, I think that's that question gets to the core of not just Picard, but uh, Starfleet as an institution and the Federation as an institution, which is when you are uh, utopian, optimistic, forward-thinking, hopeful. Uh, how do you deal with the inevitable encounters with uh, creatures, species, people who aren't that? And um, it's sort of like you're leaving, you've left you, your own species cynicism uh, and the darker aspects of your species. You've tried to leave them behind and succeeded greatly. But can you really understand uh, seeing them in the wild again? Can you really appreciate them? Uh, can you deal with them when you meet them again in the future if you don't remember those those things in yourself? So um, Picard meeting the Romulans, yes, he is there as a, a rescuer, a savior. Not that he would call himself a savior, but he's there in a spirit of hope and optimism. He's greeted surprisingly open openly by the Romulans because the whole context is that the Romulans are incredibly secretive and you'll see more of that play out in the show itself. Um, this is very much contrasting um, the openness of Starfleet at the time, not Starfleet in the show where we know it's changed, but the openness of Star Starfleet at the time with the resistance, the hesitancy of the Romulans that, that sort of closed society and also uh, to your point about the, the native species, they're willing to sacrifice their racism, their speciesism, um, which is antithetical to, to Starfleet. So Picard, I think, and we've seen it, I think, in the history of the show, balancing that um, optimistic, hopeful sense with a kind of canny understanding of um, personalities and motives and what can happen and you have to balance that as you go. Um, and Picard has always been great at that. That's why he's chosen for this mission, um, because he has seen and experienced it all. Um, and that's you know, on the first page of the third issue. That's why we wanted to have that brief montage looking at the different things that had happened to him. And Angel did a great job with the four lights panel, which was amazing. Um, but basically, it's, it's, that, it's that dichotomy between uh, hopefulness and a certain cynicism that represents the Romulans, that conflict is both what uh, causes um, the rifts that led Picard away from Starfleet, and it also powers the events of the show without giving anything away. So, and you also mentioned about the natives on the planet. Tell us about them because, and we're, we're now into spoiler territory and we do that, of course, on the show. We want to dig into everything as if everybody's read it and no way no yeah. one has read it. If they hear the whole thing, sometimes they want to go read it then, but it's, you know, they're unique. I mean, they have waterfalls that they've created that go, you know, they're upside down. So they're, they're, uh, I would say an iron age species um peaceful um spiritual you know that scene with the the upside down waterfalls is a sacred place to them um but they have been colonized by uh, a race uh, that cares nothing for all of that and is only interested in how they can exploit the species and the planet for the benefit of the romulan empire and more specifically the romulan people, uh, their species. So, um, and I think as with a lot of things, Romulan, the racism and the, uh, 
the slave aspect of the enslavement of these people is couched in this kind of um, you're so lucky. We're actually helping you by colonizing you and enslaving you. We're giving you the benefit of being a Romulan subject now, even though, of course, the natives don't have the same rights as um, Romulans do. And in fact, are forced to work as we see it in this case in the vineyard. Um, so it was important to have, uh, and we wanted to pick, we wanted to make up a race we hadn't seen before. Um, we didn't, we didn't want it to be too much of a, Hey, remember this? Um, we wanted it to be Picard dealing with the Romulans and then the triangle of this third species that in it, honestly is sort of ripe for inclusion in the Federation. Once they get to warp travel, right? They're not there yet. Um, right. The Romulans don't care about the prime directive. They're going to go and colonize worlds and take them over. Um, but this is a species that if they hadn't been colonized by the Romulans, you can imagine them in a couple of millennia um, with their positivity and spirituality, um, their optimism being a, a good candidate for membership in the Federation. Um, I don't mean spirituality so much in the sense of religion, of course, but, but just, um, uh, sort of hopefulness and uh, uh, a human, uh, well, not humanism, but um, belief in um, the value of each individual. So, yeah, it, it was fun to to create them, and and uh, Onhel did an amazing job with the design. We wanted them to be interesting looking, but not threatening. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it, it worked out really well. Yeah, and they uh, lead their attack against the Romulans, which I like. I mean, they're almost kind of like Groot-looking, you know? I am they Groot. do have a certain Grootness about them. And, and that's the thing. Like, even though they're peaceful, when they are, when they are attacked, um, they attack back. And I, it's not explicit in the comic, but I like to think that the Romulans kind of brought it on themselves. That the violence oh, that's that, how I that, took it, yeah. Right? Like, the violence that the Romulans had to use to, to conquer them, even though we don't see it in the comic, you're teaching that to the people that you're conquering, right? Like, mm -hmm. you're teaching them in the same way that, you know, the Europeans came over and brought guns and horses and um, changed the native peoples of the continent. Um, it, it's not just conquering, but you're you're affecting them in a negative way. You're, you're taking their culture and turning it into um, a mirror of your own. And you end up creating the violence that you're, you're fighting against. Well, and Laris and Zaban is how are instrumental in this too. They're working yeah. with them to help them, which is a great transition for these characters because they were Tao Shiar. And now mm -hmm. here they are helping these people against the Romulans. I mean, they're, mm -hmm. they're setting themselves up that they have no future in Romulan society. That's right. Yeah. And that had to be the case so that we could, it had to make sense that they would end up on earth and it had to be because um, they had nowhere else to go, but also because they respected Picard. They respected what he did um, and what he does in, in trying to rescue so many Romulans. And as we, we talk about in the comic, the Tal Shiar, because they are, they are cynical and dark and always looking for the, for the bad angle. They see the, start for the Federation's rescue mission as just an attack, right? It's, it's like, that's how Romulans would interpret it. You're not coming to save us. You're coming to dislocate, to, to relocate a bunch of Romulans and weaken our empire. And who even knows if this supernova is going to come off. So they don't believe any of it. And honestly, I don't really blame them. I mean, 
that's you can see where uh if <laughs> if another country was like hey america uh you know, old faithful is going to blow and a mega volcano is going to wipe you out. So we're going to move everyone in California over to our country. I don't, I don't think Americans would be like, Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah. That's true. I never thought of that. <laughs> uh, so, um, I can see where the Romulans are coming from, but, um, but they're wrong. And, uh, we also wanted, we didn't want to be too heavy handed, but there's also, and there's more of this in the novel you'll see is that the science is pretty solid, but the supernova is going to blow. And there are people that, ignore the science to their detriment and the detriment of everybody. And obviously that's a big parallel to what's going on in the world today. So one well, also kind of strengthens the whole movie of Star Trek 09 with, with Nero and mm-hmm. his distrust of the Federation yeah, so, and Spock. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Nero because Nero is out there. Like Nero's right. Nero's in the history of the Picard show. Um, you know, older Spock, still followed Nero all, all everything you see in the flashback in the 2009 movie happens, right? Like that's in the timeline of the Picard show. It's the prime timeline. What has changed is the events depicted in the original countdown comic of 2009, where we had data in B4's body captain of the enterprise and Picard was ambassador on Vulcan. So that's all changed because the show take the Picard show takes precedent. But I also figured if anybody's going to rewrite the countdown comic from 2009, I would want it to be me. Like I was like, if it's, if it's not going to be it's not going to make sense now, at least let me be the one to. Yeah. Cause there was a countdown it. comic for those other movies. Yeah. And some of that is now contradicted from what mm-hmm. we're doing with Star Trek Picard. Cause for example, Picard was an ambassador. Yeah. But to your point about Nero, that is all still the same. Like that happened. It hasn't changed that. And I like to think about that, that, you know, if you were in that, you know, you're in a Starfleet headquarters or museum or something, you could go read about what happened and you could read about Spock disappearing. And uh, yeah, I like to think it's all, all connected there. But we, but we did what we didn't want to do was connect it, like just blatantly connect the 2009 movie to the Picard show. It just wasn't the right thing to do. Like well, yeah, let this, this show, show be really its own needs, thing. Yeah, it has to stand on its own. You know, yeah. and I think that's also great too because it's not just a TNG 2.0. I mean, this really is a separate series. Yeah. It has links to these, but it is a standalone. Yeah. It's got a different tone. It's got a different focus, um, which is great. I think it's adding dimensions and colors to Star Trek that we haven't seen before without, without getting away from what makes Star Trek, Star Trek. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it had to, it had to walk a fine line between, um, May, you know, invoking all the things we all loved about Next Generation Picard while at the, at the same time having a reason to exist as a new story. And this is what Patrick George talked about this in interviews where he didn't want to come back to it unless it was worth telling and, and a story worth telling about Picard and that things were happening to Picard. And, uh, you know, he was hesitant at first to do it, but Kirsten and Michael Shabon and Kim Goldsman and Alex came up with a really powerful emotional story and I, you know i saw some people grumbling that the first episode was 
you know, too slow and, you know, what is this exactly? But I, I think now that people have seen the second, especially when they see the third, they're going to realize all of this um, laying of the groundwork, reintroducing us to Picard is really going to pay off in a big way. Yeah. Ooh, see, now I'm excited. Well, I'm already excited, yeah. but now, you know, yeah. gosh, now I got to wait a few more days. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, going back real quick to the Romulans again, yeah, the way this comic ends, we have the the governor and her team of Romulans taking over uh, Picard's ship. The, the Verity? Yeah, they take over the Verity. And then, so what, but, you know, the thing that really stands out to me with this, with the Taushyar and, you know, our, our two Romulan characters that we know now, there are different levels. Like, it's always seems to be one dimensional sometimes when we talk yeah. about Romulans and Klingons, if, if all Romulans are this and they're all have the same mission, there's yep. different levels. Definitely. Definitely. There's, there's the Romulan Senate, um, which by the way, like our Senate is not some unified body all the time. No Senate right. is. So there's all sorts of competing motives there. So, and then you have the Senate versus the Tal Shiar who basically operate like they're a separate power structure making the real decisions, the critical decisions. So there's tension there. And then you have the fact that like Laris and Javon were, were Tal Shiar agents who became disillusioned with the creed. Um, and having spent time, um, you know, embedded with a native population, they came to have their, uh, they came to reassess their priorities and their, their view of, existence and and their view of the of the Romulan Empire so um yeah we definitely wanted to make it feel less like a sort of monolithic villain and that was what we what we really wanted to do in that third issue was show that um it was it was, it was never that simple it was never as simple as Romulan the Romulan Empire versus the Federation and it was never as simple as the Tal Shiar uh getting along with the Romulan Senate and that there were a lot of competing motivations and then embodied in the two characters that we then see in the show in Laris and Javon. Yeah. And some Romulans have ridges and some don't. <laughs> That's right. What are you going to do? I, I like to say that like, look at human beings. It's very Absolutely. easy in sci-fi to, to, to just have a shorthand where all the species look the same. Uh, as I like to say, Shaquille O'Neal and, and you look at Peter Dinklage and Shaquille O'Neal, you know, same species, mm -hmm. right? But in pop culture and, and sci-fi and fantasy, too often it's like species are designed by just one simple characteristic, right? Or a couple of simple characteristics. Like elves are thin and have pointy ears, you know? Um, Klingons are supposed to have ridges. Maybe they have different ridges. Maybe, maybe Klingons don't all look the same. So, um, certainly humans don't. So I love it when, when we, we try, and I, I do have to say we are guilty of making all of them look the same with the native species, the Uyadis in our comic. And part of that is a, a, a kind of simple shorthand, right? Like these are the native populations because if we suddenly had a Uyadi who was short and red or enormous and, and muscular and, you know, whatever like you, you you don't want to confuse the audience um which i think is why there's been so many species where it's like orions are green and dorians have antenna you know um 
but I always love it when you, you start to see more diversity in alien species and not just in humans. Well, that's what I loved about the Zindi when we got to season three. Right. Perfect. Perfect example. Right. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah. I always like to, uh, joke that when people first saw star trek the next generation they said oh there we go star trek's retconning the look of the humans they all used to have hair <laughs> on the top of their head now all I of a sudden that. there's one with no hair and <laughs> some guy with a beard yeah <laughs> i love it that's fantastic yeah those aren't humans <laughs> this isn't my star trek <laughs> yeah well um so the tel shiar of course we see that they're working the secret plot behind the scenes to undermine the evacuation. And of course, in the show, we're learning there's even other deeper Romulan groups that are uh, working That's towards right. their own ends as well. And I was wondering, you know, what does this say about these kind of ultra nationalistic and secretive groups? I, I, I feel like this is, you know, an important lesson that we seem to keep having to repeat a so, lot and I, I like that this kind of tackles that a bit yeah that's a great point and i think it's um if, if you're on a side that thinks like that that is not a fan of diversity right so you're just not a fan of diversity um you think there should be uh one national religion um one national language and all of that what you're saying is that you believe you are the truest believer, right? That there's one way to go and only that one way. And what happens in, in those movements is that within that movement, you get people looking at each other and saying, well, I'm actually more of a true believer than you are. Right. And it's, and, and, and that it starts to atomize itself smaller and smaller. And you see this actually in, um, unfortunately I've, I've, I've been reading stuff about, uh, you know, as we all have in the news about, um, you know, fascist groups and the rise of white nationalism and those things. And what you see a lot of times is that um, one of the reasons that they have trouble getting traction is that they end up eating each other. They end up attacking each other. And that kind of hate and fear, um, there's no safe place for it. You, you saw it in Nazi Germany. I think you saw it in, in Stalin's Russia. It, it always happens where when you're trying to define it, it I mean, I don't want to get too political, but I think we all know the obvious parallels to today and to America. You start to say, who, who is the truest believer? Who is more loyal? And those things can end, hopefully end up um, eating those movements from the inside before they can uh, do too much damage. And, you know, and then on the Federation side, which embraces diversity and is made stronger by uh, a lack of fear of the other. They're not afraid of the other. If anything, they go and, f and, and encounter the other and meet the other and say, let's talk, let's live in peace, let's learn from each other. So that's a great question though. Yeah, that, that sense of, you know, and, and you see, so to circle back to the show, you see it within the Romulans where um, there, there's um, even deeper levels of, of um, dirty tricks and black ops than the tell she are. And, uh, you'll see this more as the show continues. You'll see it a lot in, in, um, the upcoming novel where the Romulans are all, all about secrecy, false doors, um, mazes within a building. Like there's never just a, a, a free open door. Um, so, uh, that kind of walls behind walls behind walls is a, is a feature of, key feature of Romulans. 
you know, as as you're talking through this, it just made me realize, you know, we've known about Romulans since, you know, Star Trek began, and we've always learned a little more and more. And just recently, even from this comic to the first couple episodes of Picard, I feel like we really get to know Romulans a lot quicker, more deeper than we've had yeah. before. And I almost think, in a sense, you could call this series, even though I haven't seen it all play out, but you could call it Star Trek Romulans, because I feel like we're mm-hmm. going to learn just about as much about Romulans mm. as we're going to learn about Picard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you trying to get me to spoil stuff? Because that was a really good way to do it. That was a sneaky I, way to do it. I, I'm Ooh. not trying to get spoiled. That was good. But no, no, I, but I'm, I think, but I, but I think I'm not spoiling anything to say. You can see how the story is set up, and um, that's not going to end with the second episode for sure. And I, I think it speaks. I think it speaks to the fact that um, a key aspect of the Romulans, as they've developed over over the decades in the story in star trek lore is is that um we're peeling we're finally peeling back the the layers and the romulan supernova as a storytelling device is kind of the key that unlocks uh what they do and um star trek online uh has done an incredible job of playing out the effects of of that supernova and how things might unfold in the centuries to come when there is no Romulan homeworld, right? Like the thing that is like the core of the secret, it's the heart of the species is gone. Um, and how does that affect, uh, and not only how does that affect a species obsessed with secrecy, but how does that affect uh, a species that believes it's genetically superior to, to all the others? Mm-hmm. And the show really feels like it's, it's going back to, the beginnings, like in this mm. last episode, we got hints that, you know, we're talking about thousands of years ago, yeah. some of this from the formation, yeah. you know, the, the sundering, I guess, between them and Vulcan. That's right. Yeah. Which is just ripe with opportunity for stories. So I just have to ask, I mean, we're, we're at the end of this and I mean, we love the comic. I mean, we've enjoyed all three. Oh, issues. Thank you. It's been a fun ride. Oh, that's right? that's great to hear. Yes. Thank you so I, much. I, and coming from you guys, especially that no check so well and um yeah means yeah, a lot Thank we, you. we are the experts of track yeah. <laughs> <No. laughs> yeah. but i'm just wondering you know uh, there's got to be other plans for picard comics i don't know mm-hmm. if you can say anything yet or not but at least i'm sure you're thinking uh, we've talked about them sure yeah, yeah we've talked about them i would like to do more i love writing the character i've only got to write him in a brief bookend we did a special story in the Kelvin universe where Q comes over and messes with the Kelvin universe. And that was bookended by a scene between Picard and Q in the prime universe. So I haven't really got to write Picard a lot. It was really fun writing him this time. And because it was different from the Picard in the show, right? He's like still like an admiral and in charge and everything. Um, But I would be, you know, I would, as as you've seen, you know, season two is, is greenlit for Picard. So I think, uh, yeah, I would love to see more. And I, I think the kind of mini series approach is the best way to go. Um, mm-hmm. You avoid mm-hmm. some of the ongoing uh, series fatigue that can set in. Right. Yeah. Knock on wood, knock on par steel. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so any projects that you're working on now that you can tell us about? Um, I am working uh, almost every day on a mobile Star Trek game called Fleet Command which is a free-to-play strategy game, a massive online multiplayer set in the Kelvin universe. And we're actually telling new stories set 
in the Kelvin timeline. And as we did in the comics, uh, showing how events in the episodes in the original timeline play out in the Kelvin universe, uh, it's very much a, a, a strategy kind of uh, warships combat game, but um, we're putting a lot of narrative into it. And the art is stunning and fantastic. Um, we have a Borg event that just launched. So this is the first time we're seeing the Borg in the Kelvin universe, except for the Narada, which uh, longtime readers will know has some Borg DNA in it. But yeah, that's right. uh, yeah we're introducing the Borg in the Kelvin universe. So it's really exciting. Um, and then I'm a creative consultant for CBS Interactive on all of the Star Trek games. And uh, it's been really fun working with Star Trek Online, uh, who have uh, provided us with the model for the Verity in the comic was based on a Star Trek online ship. And we're hoping to do more of that in the future. So there's really, I, I think since Alex Kurtzman has come over to run the franchise and the team that he's developed around him, there's a, a real concerted effort to um, manage the franchise, make sure everybody's talking to everybody else and feel like it's building out um, the universe in a way that it, hasn't uh for for a long time so it's a really exciting time to be a star trek fan that's cool so i I think the borg also showed up in the boldly go comic is there any kind of tie in there for us ultimate comic nerds yes so um get excited about so (laughs) what's fun is i've been able to take some of the stuff from the comic and put it in the game like our um starfleet academy cadets are all in the game in these amazing 3d renderings um based on the comic um uh, but I'm not, I don't want the game to be beholden to the comics because some, right. sometimes so, um, but there are things like in the comic book story, Spock is assimilated or the board try to assimilate him. And we're going to have some similar types of things in the game. And you're going to see characters assimilated that you haven't seen assimilated before. So awesome. check out fleet command cool. and uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm definitely checking that out. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So if anybody wants to find you online, where can um, they find you? I'm kind of a hermit. Uh, I'm a I'm a 20th century boy. I grew up before the internet. I don't really understand it. So, um, well, Picard's a hermit too. Yeah, it's I, that, that's why I, that's why I like him. Um, but <laughs> I'm on Twitter. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm on Twitter at Mike Comics. M I K E C O M I X. I don't post a lot i'm not on i'm not on social media for my own sanity um and because it helps it's me probably get the, the smart done. decision yeah but i will <laughs> post there from time to time in fact i was thinking i should probably get back on there this weekend and see what people are saying about the show and talk about the comics so um please chime in there i'm happy to hear from people even if you want to tell me that it's terrible i don't mind and um just thank you to everybody that bought the comic and supported the comic because it it means that we get to make more and it shows um, it shows the powers that be that the comics are valuable and, uh, and worth doing. So thank you to everybody out there that, that bought them and didn't pirate them and read them. You're here. Quick word, quick word about piracy. Actually, I understand, uh, why people would be inclined to pirate them. Absolutely. Um, but the bottom line is if people pirate them, um, then they don't make any money and we won't make any more comics, which sucks. So if you can, uh, yeah, please buy them. We are very grateful. Yes. Well, I hope there's even more to buy. So, I'm amen. Saving up my wallet. You know. A- well, amen. Thank you. 
Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us and we'll let you go so you can keep writing more stories. Yeah. Let's do this again sooner. Uh, it's been too long. So yeah, definitely. Maybe know, we can definitely. catch up at the end of the card series. That'd be fun. We can talk about it. Oh yeah. Let's plan on that. All right. That'd be great. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you guys. Live long and prosper. I think this is really a new era of Star Trek books and comics with how closely they're tied in with the television show, thanks to Kirsten Beyer and her role here. I, I love that this comic is so closely entwined with what we've seen in Star Trek Picard so far. And as the series goes on, we're going to see more of those ties. And that makes me so excited. It's like a little gift to those of us who read the comics and the novels. It's so much fun. I think they were doing this with Discovery, but I feel like mm -hmm. this is more closely intertwined. I think maybe because they had more direction for the Picard series in mind at this point when they were developing the comics and novels than maybe they did with Discovery. I don't know. I just get the, it just feels to me that this is closer to the series. I almost felt like the Discovery books and comics kind of had to dance around Discovery a little more where this is mm -hmm. more intertwined. I feel like, yeah, maybe the Discovery stuff had to kind of invent more of a backstory, whereas this, like, they have a backstory in mind how we got from TNG to where we are now. And so there's kind of more to work with and more to play with there, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Well, I don't know. It's been fun talking about how this intertwines with Star Trek Picard. But this isn't the only thing we've been intertwining with at the network. So here's a quick look oh at some of the other things you may have seen elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, The Line, a Star Trek Picard podcast. A concern that a lot of people brought up was that when you see Utopia Planitia, there's several Discovery era ships that you see there. I, I don't and understand how people can have a problem with that. But I let's talk about understand. it a little bit. Because how long was the Excelsior class around for? <laughs> yeah, that's 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 my point as well. There's also a TOS shuttle in Generations in the 24th century, mm -hmm. and a bunch. And there could be like a story reason for that, right? Earl Grey. There's one point that annoys me, and it's the the trans using the transporter to reverse the whole thing, <laughs> and they find a, yeah. a hair on our brush. That's in the like, why would you keep your hairbrush in the back of the second drawer down? I don't know. I'm sure people do it today. No, I I'm keep sure. my hairbrush in a drawer. <laughs> in the back of the second drawer down, though. Like, she's got like eight, eight there drawers. There may be items more important in the top drawer. So, Joe, oh. you're worried about like the, the drawer placement the and the part of the drawer? <laughs> I love that. Primitive culture. A look at history and culture through Star Trek. You can go back and you can see a lot of the familiar arguments um, that we associate with modern Star Trek fandom playing out in fandom in real time in the 90s through fanzines like Cinefantastique, for example. And what happens during the second season, if you read the interviews on various episodes, is that you see writers and people working on the show using the magazine in order to advance their own narrative of the production of Voyager. Standard Orbit. The season as a whole is just this tremendous journey. It's a roller coaster that, uh, when you get to Operation Annihilate, takes a very sharp drop very suddenly. <laughs> but at least it's over very quickly. But like as it goes, you're ramping up and up and up and up, and it's just it's it's amazing to watch in those terms. So that would probably be why it would be maybe my fourth favorite Star Trek season ever. 
And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Wow, all those episodes sound really good, so check out those shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond, and you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, unlike me, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And we would absolutely love it if you could find the time to leave us a star rating and a written review. Let us know what you think about the show and maybe areas in which we can improve it as well. If you're like me and not an Apple user, though, we've got you covered as well. You can find all of our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, most third-party apps. I think I use Podcast Addict as an example. Uh, And you can stream and download the MP3 files from our website or grab the RSS link there as well. I use Downcast for my podcasts. Nice. Just letting you know. Uh, if you'd like to help us keep all of our Trek FM shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, patron zone it requires a great deal of money to produce host industry with these shows each month and we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team again you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek fm we'd also love to hear your thoughts on today's show and there are many ways for you to do that the best place of course to join in the larger conversation is in the babel conference that's our listeners group on facebook just type babel b-a-b-e-l into the search field on facebook and it should come right up find the thread for this episode and leave a comment and we will probably read it on the next episode for you If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter, at trek.fm, and on Facebook, at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And find us on our Goodreads group. We have bookshelves there with our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section, so you know what is coming up for future shows. Plus, there's great conversations happening about the books and comics. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. And we'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shane Mutala, Justin Ozer, Jeffrey Harlan, and Casey Pettit for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Dan, when you're not bathing in an upside-down waterfall, where can people find you? You know, <laughs> I got to say that upside down waterfall, especially when you're bathing, takes a little bit of getting used to. Uh, and that's all I'm going to say about that. Just just picture that in your head. It gets your <laughs> private parts really clean, though, doesn't it? Well, you just went ahead and said it. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> when I'm not doing that, you can find me on Twitter. Not tweeting about that, probably. <laughs> it really uh, cleans your Twitter real well, too. <laughs> Yeah, I have a squeaky clean Twitter. Um, you can find me there <laughs> at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. Uh, you can also find me on YouTube.com slash Kurtrats Productions, where I have a YouTube channel talking mostly about Star Trek and where on Friday nights you can join me, Bruce Gibson and Brandy Jackala talking about the latest episode of Star Trek Picard in a live stream as well. Uh, that's 
youtube.com slash Kurtrats Productions, which I think I already said, but it bears repeating. Uh, and you can also find me on uh, facebook.com slash Kurtrats Productions and, of course, in the Babel Conference. Now, Bruce, when you're not cooling your heels in a Romulan prison because <laughs> you have this crazy belief that all sentient beings are created equal, where can we find you? Well, you can find me here on the network doing literary treks with you, because that's what this show is, things being equal. And then we do the live show together, again, things being equal. I do that live from the edge with Brandy, where uh, after an episode of Discovery, do live on the network on Trek FM. And I will be occasionally on the Star Wars Report. I'm taking a step back from it. So, um, I won't be on as often. So make sure when you go to listen to Star Wars Report, look for the episodes that I'm on and ignore all the others. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. No, it's a great show. Listen to it even when I'm not on. There's all like Absolutely. good stuff on there. It's a lot. Of, it's a fun show if you like Star Wars. So, and that's it. And oh, I'm on Twitter where I have my clean Twitter handle is at Admiral underscore Rex. So thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number 